This is the life, eh, Salisbury? Not having to get up for work on a Friday. Leanne's Spare Fridays, written and read by J.Y. Savile, with Parkin as Lord Salisbury. Episode 6, A Fake Worse Than Fakes. I'd been planning on having a lie-in, listening to the birds outside the window for a bit, and revelling in not having to spend such a lovely spring day stuck in an office. Then there was rumbling, followed by an almighty crash from the living room, and I sprang out of bed to check Salisbury hadn't been flattened, or created a shortcut down into my neighbour Douglas's living room. It's not that long since he had his ceiling replastered, so I can't say he'd be best pleased if it had a hole in it. He was sat on the sofa licking between his toes and radiating innocence. Lord Salisbury, that is, not Douglas. The cascade of paperbacks across the floor, however, suggested he'd been trying to climb the precarious mountain of books I'd left there the night before when I abandoned my attempt to rearrange my bookshelves. I should have shoved them all back on the nearest shelf, but I trusted my idiot cat not to go near it. More fool me. Now I had to clear up a mixture of books from the shelves, books I hadn't read yet that he'd knocked out of the magazine rack, and a broken radio that had been catapulted across the room from the upturned coffee table. I was in the middle of telling him what a dim-witted and irresponsible moggy he was when Douglas banged on the door and shouted, Are you OK? and I opened it without thinking. I said I hadn't been shouting at Salisbury that much, and anyway it was his own fault for being an idiot, but I was happy to answer on his behalf that he was fine, thank you, no need to call the RSPCA. Douglas looked at me like he was trying to do long division in his head, then said he'd actually been trying to find out if I was okay after the ceiling-shaking thump, but he could see that I was, so he'd leave me to talk to my cat. I said he can't have been that concerned, given the gap between the thud and his appearance, but he pointed out he'd been at the toilet at the time. What would I have him do, fly to my aid with his trousers round his ankles? And speaking of trousers, he said, you appear to have mislaid yours. To be honest, getting properly dressed hadn't been at the forefront of my mind when I ran out of the bedroom. I said he should be thankful it wasn't warmer and I'd at least been wearing an oversized t-shirt in bed, but I'd forgotten t-shirts were a sore point and he glared at me, then stalked back down to his flat. I heard his front door close quite firmly behind him. The thing about Douglas is, he doesn't appreciate the helpful neighbourly things I do for him. Last week his washer was on the blink. I'd gone downstairs, at his invitation I might add, to help him eat a box of cream cakes a client had given him, and he was moaning about having to wash his lucky t-shirt by hand before Sunday. I daren't ask what sort of lucky t-shirt, in case it was like some people have lucky pants, but it turned out to be cycling related. It's a souvenir from when he was in some ridiculously long race when he was younger and fitter, and he wanted to wear it for a charity ride. I said I could probably cope with one of his t-shirts in with my washing. What are friendly neighbours for? He had just let me eat the entire apple turnover instead of splitting it with him like we did with the rest. So I took the lucky t-shirt upstairs with me and chucked it in the wash. Only Lord Salisbury had dropped a red furry... Um, I'm not sure what it was meant to be, to be honest. But it had a tail and it was full of catnip and it ended up in the washing basket. And because, as Douglas put it, I can't be trusted to check the floors there before I start walking... From there, it made its way to the washing machine and spent an hour or so wearing around in hot water. Most of my clothes are quite dark, so they were okay, though my jeans will have a bit of a pinkish tinge for a while. Douglas's t-shirt, unfortunately, was mainly white. Or it was when it went in. I tend not to wear white, it shows everyone how covered in cat hair you are. Unless you've got a white cat, I suppose, and even then. 
Anyway, believe it or not, I was not Douglas's favourite person at this point, and I've started to get used to him being summonable when I don't fancy sitting down with a cuppa on my own, so I was thinking I'd better figure out how to smooth things over when there was another knock at the door. I flung it open, pointed at my denim-covered leg and said, Trousers! My sister Gina said that was most impressive, but could I spell it? My infant niece Jasmine can, apparently. Though she can spell Auntie, but not Leanne. And she doesn't even attempt Lord Salisbury. She just writes cat, even on our Christmas card, so I'm not sure what that proves. I explained that I was expecting her to be Douglas, and she patted my arm and barged past into the living room. She looked at the chaos, then shook her head. She said she wasn't even going to ask. She didn't have time for my peculiarities. She'd promised Miss Harding I'd help them with the village fate, and we needed to get straight down to it. Now, I know I've only lived in Upper Wheatley a few years, but I'm fairly sure the village fate normally takes place in the middle of summer. Surely it didn't take that long to put the bunting up that we had to start now. And even if we did, it couldn't possibly be so urgent that it would deprive me of a fortifying cup of tea before I set off. And anyway, what was I saying? I had no intention of helping with the village fate, and I told Gina she could tell Miss Harding so. She did one of her theatrical sighs and then went to fill the kettle. It's never a good sign when Gina tries to be nice to me. Even Salisbury could sense impending doom and he took the opportunity to skedaddle. I think he might have been trying to advise me to get out too while her attention was elsewhere. I should learn to listen to my cat. Gina was looking at my tea caddy the way I'd look at a make-your-own souffle kit, so I took over the tea-making while she explained that it wasn't bunting they wanted me for. She'd put my name forward as historical consultant. For 15 seconds I was chuffed, flattered, on the verge of hugging my sister and thanking her for acknowledging that my local history hobby is not a complete waste of time. And then I remembered that this was Gina and there was bound to be a catch. She said Miss Harding, who's in charge of the organising committee, had been criticised for only involving a narrow section of the community in the design of previous events and basically doing whatever she felt like. And Gina, because she's the sort of person who aspires to be on the village fair organising committee, and who knows, one day maybe the parish council, leapt at the chance to prove her worth. Not only did she have a sister who was in the young demographic, but she could also verify the authenticity of the traditions Miss Harding was attempting to preserve, thus earning Gina precious brownie points. I refused, naturally. For one thing, I'm fairly sure the young demographic shouldn't include people whose ages start with a four, unless they're still on single digits like Jasmine. And for another, this was all about making Gina look good, which doesn't sit well with my principles. Gina said I was entitled to my views, of course, but I should know that the plans were going to the parish council meeting on Saturday morning and my name would be attached as historical consultant whether I'd had any input or not. I call that straight-out blackmail. Gina knew fine well I couldn't let my name be associated with badly researched traditions. She said I couldn't complain the event was for charity and I needed to learn to give back to the community. It's a shame you can't give your sister back if you find she doesn't suit, but Gina said she'd have beat me to that anyway. She started trying to find out who to return me to from the moment I was born. Only Gran eventually told her nobody could find the receipt, so she was out of luck. Knowing Gina, she'll have decided to become a lawyer in the first place to see if she could find a loophole. Before she waltzed back out, she said Miss Harding fancied trying a scarecrow festival this year, but she was open to persuasion if there was a good enough reason to do something else. I tried to find suitable words to respond but before I'd finished discarding all the four-letter ones, she'd disappeared. 
Despite living in a Dales village for the last few years, I'm not what you'd call a country person. Gina and I grew up in Bingley, which is a town that used to have a lot of mills in it. Admittedly, it also had a cattle market, and even now it's surrounded by fields and the moor and such like, but not the place to have a scarecrow festival. We did have an indie rock festival in the park every summer for years, but I think that stopped when I moved to Upper Wheatley. Not that I'm saying the two facts are linked. Anyway, the point being that since Upper Wheatley itself had never had one before either, I'd never encountered a scarecrow festival in the wild, so I sat down with my tea and my tablet and did a quick web search. I envisaged a field full of newly made scarecrows with Wurzel Gummidge playing on a loop on a big screen. In my head it was all very sinister, whereas in reality it's quite sinister actually. The idea is that people create scarecrows outside their houses, dressed for a theme, like different occupations or favourite TV programmes or people in the news. Then everyone walks around the village admiring each other's efforts, and if they're lucky, people from outside the village will come and have a look too, thus spending money at the pub etc and benefiting the local economy. And getting the village a widespread reputation for having balmy residents who spend hours of their free time building a Dalek army on the green out of straw bales. To be honest, lots of traditions seem bonkers if you stop and think about them, but they made more sense in the beginning, like saluting being a stylized way of starting to raise your hat, so I looked into the history behind it. It turns out Gina was already in her teens when the earliest Scarecrow Festival of the Dales seems to have taken place, and I know she's old, but she's not that old. And when I thought about it a bit more, it occurred to me that all the farming round here involves sheep and cows rather than fields full of crops. So unless we were celebrating the allotments up the back lane behind the church, it did seem a bit out of place. I texted Gina to say the Scarecrow Festival was a no-go, and then I thought about what I ought to pack, and who would look after his lordship if I was leaving the country for a while, and if I had time to say goodbye to Douglas. But Gina's too quick for me. She said if I was trashing Miss Harding's big idea, I'd better have a damn good replacement. I said I thought Gina busking with her loot might do it, but she said she'd given that up after she hadn't seen eye to eye with the teacher. Presumably he'd pointed out that we're not living in the Middle Ages and she might be better off with a guitar. I offered to outline her an out-of-season Bishop Blaze festival, genuinely historic and appropriate to the area, featuring a fancily dressed procession and one that Bradford had revived recently, but she didn't fancy the idea. For one thing, she reckoned we wouldn't have time to sort out costumes and props, and for another, she was under the misapprehension that Blaze was the patron saint of weavers and thus a bit boring. How are weavers boring? Anyway, I would have thought even Gina would have known he was the patron saint of woolcombers. You have to feel a bit sorry for him, really. He was a Christian martyr who was scourged with metal combs of the sort you use to start preparing wool that's recently come off a sheep. And then he spent the last 1,500 years having to keep a protective eye on the owners of said combs. Doesn't seem fair. Anyway, with poor old Blaze persona non grata, I couldn't think of much else off the top of my head. I thought back to previous summer events I'd been to. Very little of it was of solid historical value, and even less was relevant to Upper Wheatley. I suggested welly-wanging. Good countryside sport throwing your wet-weather footwear around a field on what you hope will be a fine day. And what's more, a holidaying colleague of mine was most bemused to see a welly-wanging competition in a park in Copenhagen. I mean, I don't think that's what they called it, but they were taking it in turns to throw Wellington boots as far as they could in a big expanse of grass, and that's a genuine cosmopolitan European capital. Gina still said no. So I said, what about mangle wurzels? 
I once worked with a woman from somewhere down south that's heavy on the arable farming, and apparently their favourite summer pastime was seeing how far they could throw a mangle wurzel, which, I suppose, is like welly-wanging but with turnips, though about as relevant to Upper Wheatley as scarecrows. Gina asked me to stop saying welly-wanging before she throttled someone, and she vetoed the mangle wurzels on health and safety grounds. She said you could easily knock someone out with one, which is true, but I would have thought that's where the thrill comes from. I mean, who's going to spend their time throwing root vegetables around if there isn't at least an element of danger? Once we'd established that throwing anything at shoulder height that had the remotest possibility of bruising anyone was off the cards, I said I'd have to do more research, which involved going to the library, probably a lengthy perusal of old newspapers. Gina reminded me not to make it too lengthy on account of tomorrow's parish council meeting and hung up. Time for her to power walk to Pilates or cycle to yoga or something. To be honest, I wasn't listening by then. She'd just given me actual permission to go to the library on my day off and research local history. I was not about to waste a second. It would have been rude not to say hello to Dr Shah when I got to the library. He was in his usual chair, poring over a book about the golden age of train travel which he invited me to marvel at. I agreed that the streamlined 1930s American locomotives were indeed a wonder to behold, and even more of a wonder, I'd been all but sent to the library by Gina to research local history. Well, he was as amazed as I was, so I explained about the summer traditions search. It turns out Miss Harding had wanted Dr Shah to join the organising committee so they could make the summer fate, or at least its masterminds, more diverse. He said he'd told her he shouldn't have to represent everyone who isn't white any more than she should have to represent every interfering old battle axe. Gina was apparently there at the time and told him she thought that was quite rude of him, but I think she's just jealous because she's not officially on the organising committee herself. I say good for Dr Shah, and as a bonus he'll never be asked to join another committee in Upper Wheatley as long as he lives, or at least as long as Miss Harding lives, which to be honest she'll probably make sure is longer. She's a very determined woman. I asked him what he'd like to see in this year's summer fate as long as it had a historic basis and didn't involve lobbing blunt instruments. Naturally, he said steam trains. He'd particularly enjoyed riding on an open trolley behind a working miniature steam train in a Bratford Park the previous summer and he thought it would have near universal appeal. To be fair, given that Upper Wheatley has a station that's more than 60 years old, it must have been served by steam trains at some point and I dare say you could make a case for it representing summer holidays and trips to the seaside. I couldn't see the budget stretching that far, and no doubt Gina would have something to say about the safety of sparks and hot engines, but I made a note of it and went to get started. I was alerted by my rumbling stomach to the fact that I'd spent rather longer than I meant to reading about the 1895 Upper Wheatley Flower Show and its protracted fallout. The winning roses were alleged to have been bought at a florist in Ilkley, and the flower show committee had the villagers making sworn statements to the vicar as to what they knew. As anyone who's ever lived in a village will tell you, they knew a lot, and soon the man from the Wheatley Clarion was gleefully reporting tales of adulterated cakes at the bakery, adultery at the vicarage, and illegal use of jam in the pancake race. It all got very messy, and the vicar ended up as chaplain to an Australian prison. Wow. Fascinating as it was, and though I would undoubtedly devote a chapter to it in the history of the village I was supposed to be writing, it didn't get me any further with the replacement for Miss Harding's Scarecrow Festival. Suggesting a flower show in its place seemed a bit too dangerous. Miss Harding? I don't think she has a first name, or at least nobody's used it since 1964. 
grew up in Upper Wheatley. No doubt her ancestors built most of the dry stone walls and have watched in horror over the last couple of centuries as outsiders have gradually trickled into their village, remaining ignorant of the significance of the broken gatepost on Field Row and the bricked-up window in the back of the pub, and changing the names of fields, copses and farms without so much as a buy-your-leave. All I could do was appeal to her sense of tradition and plead with her not to sully the good name of the village with anything so historically inappropriate and creepily bonkers as themed scarecrows. I knew where she lived, it was a stone's throw from where I lived, but Miss Harding was what Gina will become after a lifetime of detox smoothies and pilates and I couldn't face her on an empty stomach. Besides, it would be nice to have lunch in my flat one last time before I got banished from Upper Weekly forever. It doesn't do to rush off straight after eating. It's a sure way to indigestion, which is why Gina always has a box of peppermint-flavoured chalk in her bag. Those of us who are more civilised sit down for a while, perhaps with a handy book that a clumsy cat has knocked off a pile. And yes, perhaps I did spend a tad longer than I intended reading about the lead miners of Swaledale in the 1840s, as observed by a doctor from Westmoreland. And perhaps it wasn't strictly necessary to repopulate my bookshelves before I went out, but it did make the living room less challenging to move through. Eventually, I couldn't think of any good reason not to go speak to Miss Harding, so I left Salisbury asleep on my bed, locked my front door and knocked on Douglas's. When he saw who it was, he said, no, I'm busy. I pointed out that I hadn't even told him what I'd come down for, but he said it didn't matter, the answer was still no. I said if he was that bothered about the t-shirt, maybe he shouldn't have handed it over to someone he wouldn't even trust to open a bag of crisps without mishap, but he said we'd best not get onto the subject of t-shirts in case one of us, i.e. him, said something they might regret. So I explained that I'd actually called on him because I didn't want to see Miss Harding, and for some reason he thought this was some new community building scheme where we all got assigned a neighbour to chat to for ten minutes. I said not as far as I knew, but he should probably keep quiet in case Gina heard. It's the sort of thing she'd suggest to the parish council as long as she didn't have to take part in it herself. Douglas said he just knew he was going to regret asking, but who was Miss Harding and why was I not going to see her? Well, I had to invite myself in for a sit down because I was frankly flabbergasted that Douglas didn't know who she was given that he's lived in Upper Wheatley longer than I have. Although he doesn't have Gina roping him into things so he can avoid anyone he doesn't want to interact with. He said you'd think so, wouldn't you, but in practice it doesn't work like that. He looked at me pointedly as he said it, which I guessed was about him not being able to avoid Gina now that he knows me, which is a fair point. Anyway, I explained about the summer fate and Miss Harding wanting to go all traditional with the entirely untraditional Scarecrow Festival and I asked if he had any ideas. Though not, I said, if any of them bore any resemblance to the Wicker Man. Once we'd established that that definitely wasn't me lumping the entirety of the large and varied country of Scotland together, such that I would conflate small town Fife with a remote island and then tar both of them with a 70s horror brush, he said he did as it happened. What's more traditional than silly games where you win a goldfish? I said I didn't think anyone was so irresponsible as to give away goldfish in plastic bags of water as prizes anymore, but Douglas said I was missing the point. If we wanted tradition on a low budget, all we needed was a coconut shy, skittles, a dartboard, and the one where you had to fish bath toys out of a paddling pool. Hook a duck, I said. Only, I don't think it rhymes when Douglas says it, so perhaps it wasn't called that north of the border. But I didn't dare ask. He was on to something, though, 
and nobody ever cared what they won either, so maybe Douglas could design goldfish postcards as prizes. He shooed me out onto the stairs before he said something he might regret. It's funny I don't even remember mentioning T-shirts. I had run out of excuses by then. I did contemplate diverting to the co-op for emergency biscuits, either as a peace offering or to eat on the way, but I'd left my purse in my flat so there was nothing for it but to go around to Harding Lane and veto scarecrows. Miss Harding, Anthea as I'm supposed to call her now, turns out not to be that much like Gina at all. She quite liked the idea of a Bishop Blaze festival, but she said we ought to save that until February really, what with that being when his Saints Day is. And she knew that without me telling her. She was fine about abandoning the Scarecrow Festival too. Since everyone keeps saying she's been dominating the summer fate with her tired old ideas for too long, she thought it might be a bit different, that's all. She had apparently wanted some new perspectives, but having insulted the prime candidate with her clumsy approach, she said, as the admirable Dr Shah might put it, she only had a bunch of interfering old battle axes to choose from. And what would be the point in that? That seemed an excellent juncture at which to put forward his steam train suggestion. I explained that it represented Upper Wheatley Station, summer holidays and days at the seaside. But she said, nonsense girl, it's a steam train. Everyone loves steam trains. I can't help thinking Dr Shah might have missed out on a kindred spirit here. Anyway, as luck would have it, Anthea's nephew is a steam train enthusiast who actually builds the things in his garden shed. Not big enough for us to sit behind and be pulled round a track, but fully working and with proper safety certificates for steaming in public, which will keep Gina happy. And it's all within budget, because as Anthea said, he's family, so of course she won't be paying him. Another thing Gina will wholeheartedly endorse, I'm sure. So then we got on to Douglas's ideas from the slightly naff summer fates of our respective youths, and Anthea said let's go the whole hog and call it an 80s retro event. She knows someone with a working soda stream machine, though I suspect the old bright blue fizzy pop has gone the way of goldfish in plastic bags. She also suggested reviving the popular Upper Wheatley game of Cowpat Bingo, which apparently is where you mark out a grid in a field and then let a cow loose. Whoever correctly guesses which square it'll get caught short in wins a prize. I said as long as she made it clear to Gina that that one was not my idea, it was fine by me. Honestly, the things people in rural villages do for entertainment. Over the second cup of tea, we got on to the 1895 flower show controversy, which I started telling her about, then realised she knew more about it than I did. It turns out her great-uncle was the contestant who'd stuck his pancake down with jam in the Shrove Tuesday race, the disgraced vicar had been to tea many times in the very parlour I was sitting in. She had in her possession three of the sworn statements, which she said I was most welcome to come over and look through, along with all the other myriad papers in the trunk upstairs. And Gina had known this woman all along and never introduced us. Anthea said she knew how I felt she had a sister herself, though at least she'd got an excellent nephew out of the arrangement. And then she asked me if I'd like to be on the organising committee for the summer fete. Oh, I was tempted. So tempted. But the inevitable 40 years of Gina holding it against me was too high a price to pay for the moment of smug triumph as I told her the news. So I said thank you, but no. We agreed that I'd be a sort of general historical consultant to the parish council whenever required. And then we strolled along to the common where the fete is usually held. It's a shame the old stocks are so in the way, Anthea said. I looked at them and they sparked another 80s memory. 
our primary school headmistress in a sort of makeshift stocks type affair in the playground, getting custard pies in the face for children in need. As I pointed out to Anthea, the stocks wouldn't be in the way if we were using them. Gina didn't manage to pin me down until after she'd picked Jasmine up from school and taken her home for her organic, nutritionally balanced tea. Honestly, if it wasn't for me, the poor child would never have tasted fish fingers, chips and beans. I said she needn't worry, I'd done exactly as she asked and presented Anthea, that's Miss Harding to her, with a great alternative to the Scarecrow Festival. She was all set to take it to the parish council meeting in the morning and she was very happy with it. Because my sister has no faith in me, she made me outline the whole thing. So I told her about the miniature steam trains, the pony rides, hook a duck with Douglas's goldfish postcards as prizes. He hasn't actually agreed to that yet, but I'm sure he will. I said I'd even thought of a way to use the village stocks that are normally just big wooden structures that get in the way. I was calling it pay to pelt. One ticket entitles the bearer to chuck three wet sponges at the person in the stocks. Gina thought it was a wonderful idea until she found out who the person in the stocks was. I said she wasn't allowed to complain, it was for charity, and anyway, all that cold water on her face would probably do wonders for her skin. Douglas and Richard had already bought their tickets. In fact, Richard had bought two so Jasmine could have a go. And I'd taken to heart what Gina said about giving back. I had a feeling I was going to come over all generous tomorrow and spend my afternoon drumming up business at the entrance to the co-op. I was sure Miss Harding would be thrilled. That was the last episode of this series of Leanne's Spare Fridays. It was written and read by J.Y. Savile and produced by J.Y. Savile with assistance from Andrew Woods. I would be totally chuffed if you'd subscribe to this podcast and if you enjoyed it, please spread the word. There are plans for a second series starting in December 2023. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at J.Y. Savile. And if you'd like to support me on Ko-fi, it's ko-fi.com slash J-Y-S-A-V-I-L-L-E.